Hello and welcome to the VPAR podcast, brought to you by the world's number one golf app, providing golfers with live scoring technology, GPS yardages, stats, tracking and challenges, enabling you to compete against your mates and other golfers from all corners of the globe. The VPAR app is free to download and available on iOS and Android. Hello and welcome to the VPAR podcast, brought to you by the VPAR golf scoring app. With me to discuss the most infuriating game in the world is a face familiar to any Formula One fan. He's the presenter of Sky's Grand Prix coverage. But as well as that, and of course golf, we are going to discuss something that might surprise you. Movies, tennis, and perhaps the most famous tennis player of them all. Simon Lazenby, welcome to the podcast. I thought you, I thought you were uh, like billing me as the most famous uh, tennis player of them all there. But yeah, hi. <laughs> yeah, with a delayed intro there. We'll let people guess who that is for a while. Yeah, and it's not Tim Henman. That's all I'll say is a clue. Uh, Simon, thanks so much for joining us. We always start this podcast with the same question. When did you first pick up a golf club? Oof. Six or seven, I think. My, my dad, uh, he worked for BP for many years. Uh, and so we travelled around a bit. So we were down in in Perth, in Australia, and I remember, uh, yeah, I remember the first game of golf would have been would have been down that way. He was a member of a place called Cottesloe Golf Club, and all I remember is that uh, he came back one day from around the Cottesloe Golf Club, and he said, "The guy I played with, it was unbelievable. He was on the on the seventh or something like that. And a big brown snake came across the fairway, and he said, watch this, <laughs> and all lovers." you know, avert your ears. But basically, because they're so deadly, they were like, right, okay, what are we going to do? Because his ball was near it. He went up to the stake, pinned it to the floor with his seven iron and took his head clean off with his wedge like that. He said, that's how they got rid of, that's how they got rid of brown snakes in Perth. So, uh, so yeah, so gladly, I, I didn't see one the day I played with him, but um, yeah, it was down in Australia because the, the weather was great. And uh, so long as you avoided the snakes, then you're all right. Can I just say that's the most dramatic first golf story I've ever heard? I don't know. If that, I don't. Know, I don't know if it stands up to historical scrutiny, but I'll take it. No, it does. I tell you what, it's not that. Funny enough, I was playing the Berkshire uh, about uh, I don't know, probably about ten years ago, and it was a really lovely spring morning. And is it the Blues? I can't remember the one where you start with the par three or the red course. The blue, the blue, yeah, blue, isn't it? So play the par three. Then there's the long par five, and there afterwards, and I hoiked it into the. Um, Hoiked it into the heather on the left. Went to get my ball. And just as I was approaching my ball, I was like that. I was down the fairway, you know, honestly, like a shot. I can't remember what I was playing with. But it was an adder. And it was obviously, it was a spring. And it, so, you know, I don't know what it is. Oh, uh, uh, you followed up one snake story with another. I've I know, I've got gone too back. Back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid playing with you. <laughs> did you, and did you, um, did you always enjoy it? Did you immediately like it? Yeah, I, I loved it. I played it a lot as a kid. Um, so we were up in Scotland and we played at a place called uh, Muckett Golf Club. I was in the pool of Muckett. So, uh, you know, every every village in Scotland has got a golf course. And it was great. You know, I mean, God knows what my dad paid. Was it probably 10 quid a year for membership or something like that? So played there for four years. and I think it gave me a, a decent enough grounding before I moved down south. Brilliant. And you still play now? Still playing out. So, yeah, I went from there. I was a member of Effingham for a number of years uh, and then moved to the Richmond, uh, the one just uh, on, on Subbrook Lane. And now I'm trying to move to Wimbledon. I'm near the 16th. I've, I'm doing all my uh, <laughs> committee rounds and, and trying to trying to get climb the greasy pole to get into uh, into 
Royal Wimbledon, but I can't wait if I can. It'd be, uh, it'd be brilliant. It's a great course. Yeah, I think that's why the, the the only time amateur golfers know what it's like to be stress the stress of a professional round is play is playing to get into a club with a and saying <laughs> sorry I normally play much better. I don't know if I'm damaging my membership application by talking about it, but yeah, it is it is nerve it's very nerve wracking. I think I've played with the the treasurer of a captain and somebody on the greens committee already, and it's it's worse than playing a medal. I can tell you, standing on the first tee. And is there much golf overlap with Formula One? Is there a, I mean, there's not much downtime in Formula One, is it? It's not like a cricket tour. I mean, they're they're pretty busy when they're on the when they're on the yeah. road. There's not there's not rest days. No, well, I'm going to Singapore on Wednesday, and I mean, usually it's kind of track, um, track hotel dinner bed, track hotel dinner bed, and it kind of eat sleep repeat and, and broadcast in the middle. But there is a bit of golf. It depends where we're going. Um, but we'll play either Sentosa or another one in Singapore, and then I hopefully get around at Yas Links in Abu Dhabi. And we one of the one of the best things is we've got to know um, through Damon and Crofty, we've got to know the manager at Kingston Heath in uh, in Australia. So obviously one of the first ones, or it used to be the the opener of the, the season, was down in in Australia, and uh, we managed to get onto Royal Melbourne once, but Kingston Heath is on a par with it. And now it's almost taken as red. We'll land at five in the morning, go there, pay the most. I mean, it's regularly in the top 20 courses in the world. It's fantastic. And it's, it's a good way to get to beat the jet lag, go straight there, a couple of pints afterwards, and then uh, off to the casino or, or bed, whichever is. Uh, very, yeah, which very impressive. It sounds like some, some things in Formula One haven't changed. <laughs> are, are any of the drivers, do any of the drivers play? I know Jack. Yeah, they do. Yeah. We, were, we were in Bahrain um, and we played. Uh, we played Royal Bahrain this year and we saw Carlos Sainz was always there and um, and Lando Norris actually joined us for, for a round, myself, Crofty and Natalie and played with us because he's a keen golfer, finished the 18 with us. You know, we all went to the bar. He went straight back to the range to, to work on his game because he's desperate to beat Carlos. Because I think Carlos is off about, I don't know, maybe seven or eight now. Uh, Lando's off or he was off 15, but he's only been playing for about, a year and a half. So these guys, they've all got hand-eye coordination. So if they put their minds... I was about, I was about to ask, it, it, I, I'm not a sort of Formula One expert, but it, it, it do they tend to be natural sportsmen? Yeah. And, and you don't, you don't think, you don't necessarily think that, but they, they really have to work hard physically, but they do, they do lots of reaction stuff and lots of hand-eye. If you think about what they're doing on the steering wheel, you know, they're, they're adjusting their brake bias. They're, you know, they're changing gear. They're doing a number of things, you know, with the diff on their, on their steering wheel. So they're doing that at 200 miles an hour. So I don't know if a golf swing is easy or hard comparably, but they tend to have quite a, they've got, a, you know, they've, they've definitely got an eye for a ball and a, and, and a coordinated. Yeah. And a, a bit of competitive spirit, I imagine yeah, as well. Yeah. I mean, I've, I don't know, maybe they are the most competitive sports people I've worked with in, in kind of 25 years in sport. I mean, they all are, all top-level sportsmen are, but um, as Drive to Survive has shown everybody, I think it's it's just got such a direct comparison with your teammate that you just have to beat them all the time. And if you consistently lose, you'll be out of the sport very, very quickly, just... You know, just look at what's ha- happened to Daniel Ricciardo in the in the last year and a half. He moved to McLaren. Lando Norris has has given him a, a good spanking, frankly. And you know, he's not even guaranteed a seat next year. Going, 
you know, going into the last six races. And that's amazing for someone of his caliber. Um, so, yeah, you've got to be really competitive as a, as a driver, I think. And I imagine, I mean, actually, we'll pick this up when we talk about your movie, but uh, I imagine it's quite a lonely sport as well. I mean, it is, I know it's a team sport, but you're on your own as well as a driver, aren't you? Yeah, I think mo- most of them have a a trainer that, that is their right-hand man or a, a little bit of a crew. So they might travel with their manager and their trainer um, and, you know, a physio, but the trainer quite often is the, is a physio as well. Um, so they have a little little group, but they're going ahead of time to sponsors events a lot of the time. So yes, there's a lot of travel, a lot of hotel rooms. Um, yeah, I think I can imagine it could be quite lonely. You're doing 24 races that we next year. So that's a, that's a lot in a very condensed window of what, 35, 36 weeks, something like that. So a lot of time on the road. Yeah. And actually, so I was going to move on, but you mentioned that the 24 races, just sort of big picture. Formula One, there's just nothing stopping it. I mean, of course, the controversies and stuff like that. But if you look at some of the problems besetting uh, sport at the moment, I mean, rugby that you used to front, the clubs are all going bust. Cricket, there's lots of confusion about the structure. And even golf now is yeah. beset by, Formula, by, by war. But Formula One, it just grows and grows and grows. Is, is, that, is that your sense of it on the inside? 100%. I mean, I've, I've been involved. To, I mean, I've been really lucky in that I've had 24 years with Sky. And in that time, I did the rugby for 10 years. Um, I did test match cricket. I've done some golf. So I kind of really moved around the sports uh, early on before settling on the rugby and then on, on the Formula One. But I've never been involved in a sport that is growing exponentially like this is. And there's a number of reasons for it. But number one, that you've got a, a great crop of young, good-looking drivers coming through. We're finding that the drive-to-survive effect as well has brought America into it. So for the first time, really, it looks like they're cracking America because these, these all-or-nothing type series like Drive to Survive is gives you the insight into their personalities. It's bringing in younger audiences and it's directly translating into to our live viewing figures. So I don't know what we are over the last couple of years. It's something like 40 or 50% up. But of all the sports, I think, on you know on the Sky roster, it's the one that's growing the most and the fastest and most consistently. But you mentioned Netflix and uh, and sort of documentaries and dramas, and uh, people might not realise, but you're now a, a film producer. Tell us about that. Yeah, we, we kind of um, uh, formed a company about uh, two or three years ago called Silver Entertainment, um, and we worked hard during the pandemic on a couple of films. Um, one of which, uh, as you mentioned, was about uh, John McEnroe. So we did that with Universal and, and Showtime, and it's streaming in the US at the moment on Showtime. And it's quite strange. I've, I've seen pictures of the billboard up in, in Times Square, and uh, there was one at the US Open and stuff like that. And you realise that the power of, of John as a person, because there's not many sporting icons left that probably haven't had a film about them. So we were really lucky. Uh, when this one came along and myself and my, my uh, co-founder, business partner, Victoria Burrell, she, she's really good at kind of um, taking distressed productions and, you know, re- refinancing, recalibrating them. And we worked with a, a really talented director called Barney Douglas, who'd done The Edge, which was a cricket film. Um, and he and his team filmed in New York during COVID, which was a real challenge, but we got him kind of walking around the streets in a, uh, you know, in his trench coat, pulled up against the elements, and it well, gave it's a really funny. But when I saw that, and it reminded me actually, I remember as a kid there was a poster of him 
yeah wandering around in new york you know yeah so i'm sure that was the playing on the director's mind but that was part of his iconography even as a player yeah there was i mean it was that kind of that kind of new york nighttime feel that you got from um you know the film heat with pacino and de niro and it, it kind of it's just like something different i think that's what barney was trying to achieve as opposed to the usual talking heads it was meant to be a um a trip into the mind of john through the night so that night replicating his life or a metaphor for his life if you like taking him through the or taking the audience through the highs and lows of his career and and it was it's an extraordinary career really that that had so much up front and then really went wrong in the the 84 uh, french open final against lendl when he kind of collapsed he was just he collapsed and he was hypersensitive to everything that was going around him and and he never really recovered from that and then it kind of it, you know, it petered out, and I, I don't know. I remember watching Mac in the in the later part of his career at Wimbledon, and people kind of trying, really getting behind him because initially he was super brat, and then he had all that success, and no one wanted him to have that success when they were more on Borg's side. But Borg obviously walked away, and I think that kind of took away a lot of the ambition from John because they had this really great rivalry for a couple of years, and I don't think he ever got to replicate that. What was his motivation for doing it? Why, why was it? Why did he want to do it? Um, I think, you know, it, it's a good story, and, and I think, like all retired sports people, you know, the most of the highlights of their their life. I'm not speaking for John on this because I don't know his his true motivation behind it, but I think it's, you know, to have a legacy piece and a piece that he felt represented him, and I know that. Um, the team also included Felix White, who was one of the guitarists on the, the Maccabees. And so he did the score and John's into his music and they kind of really clicked. And I think Barney uh, also really clicked with John and they, they came up with this concept and, and John liked it. And he's kind of really into his art. And he, he didn't hold anything back anyway. So I, I think that um, we've, we've done something that is really different to other sports documentaries. And, you know, we're really proud of it um, for Silver Entertainment as a first piece. But, um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a challenge getting that. And we've done another one about the Cricket World Cup final for 2019, which I hope will be out uh, kind of later this year. So that's the second one off the, the peg. Well, I'll ask you a question about that in a second. But uh, um, I just, again, picking up the McEnroe thing, I was something I picked up on was sort of mental health, really. And uh, I felt a bit sorry, but I think, in this generation, he'd have been much more looked after, or society would be much more aware. That's not trying to say there's anything wrong with it, but you know, he looked pretty broken at times during his career, didn't he? And um, yeah, society was much less forgiving of that sort of thing. I think society, I mean, obviously, it's changed. I mean, you know, beyond question nowadays, you know, he goes in in detail into you know, his drug addiction, well, not drug addiction problems, but, you know, his use of recreational drugs and his mental health and the fact that over the years he's had to see something like, I can't remember what I told my head, 38, 37 therapists um, to get to the bottom of, of where he's been. So he's undoubtedly been to um, some really dark places, but he's really um, candid about it in the film and he, and he talks about it. And I think, yes, he would have been looked after and, did it define him? You know, maybe, but maybe it was also a catalyst for the kind of tennis that he played too, that I think he kind of needed that aggression to get the best out of him. Um, 
and I think that's kind of, I think you can see it in the film. It's, it's, you know, he he was spurred by it. I think sometimes, you know, there's a there's a point, isn't there, where he disputes it. I can't remember which which match it was in. And he goes to the ref and remonstrates with the umpire, and he says, you know, come on. And then immediately, I think it's against Connors, and then immediately with the next one, he just repeats it and aces him again. And he goes, how about that one? And you just think, well, that was McEnroe. He could he could compartmentalize, you know, the the angry attitude, and then be in the moment for the next point and achieve what he needed to achieve and repeat it. That's mental strength as well as, you know, as well as the issues that he had, he also possessed a real mental strength in the game. Is, is that, um, is that temper still there? Did you ever see it? I didn't, do you know what? I didn't meet, I only met uh, John at the, uh, at the premiere in, in at the Tribeca film festival back in June. But, um, you know, John's, uh, John knows what he wants and certainly if if we did, if he hadn't got what he wanted, I think he would have pushed back on the film. And certainly, you know, we, we made sure that he had, uh, you know, a, f- a fair fair look at things. And uh, you know, he didn't have editorial control, but he definitely, if he wanted to push back, he would push back. And tell me about the cricket film. I mean, uh, um, every cricket fan, such as myself, remembers that game. Remembers where they were. I've even bought I even bought my kids. Uh, sort of calligraphy of the scorecard um uh but so t- tell us about what was the genesis of that how did that come about um we were approached by um uh, a really good director called Ashley Gething and and the writer and broadcaster Simon Hughes and they'd, they'd got this idea that the ECB liked about making this a legacy piece for the ECB and um and as a result of that we set about trying to, he- to, to help them uh, and we undid went a, a process whereby we interviewed all of the, the England players for the team, did all the, the pre-prep as producers, then went out and again, filmed it in tricky COVID conditions. Um, but again, we're, we're really, we're really proud of this one. Um, we've got, uh, you know, all members of the team and Andrew Strauss and every one of the key group to talk about that, that uh, transformation, if you like, from England's one day cricketing Nadir which was in that 2015, Cup, yeah, 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 yeah. when they went out, um, to 2019. So it, it couldn't have been a bigger transformation. And it was started by, by Strauss and Morgan and Owen and the team are, are fully behind this and we're you know, really grateful for them um, for that. And they, they all, it's obviously it's the highlight of their cricketing lives, really. And they just say, I think somebody says in the film, I don't know whether it's Joffre or one of the other guys, just says, it's just a look now. You know, you walk into a room and there's another member of the squad that, that won it that day. You don't even have to say anything. You know, you just, they, do they just start smiling? Because it's, it's that bigger moment in, in English sporting history. When you think about it, it's only 66 football team and it's only the 2003 uh, rugby team that have achieved what the 2019 cricket team have achieved. So, really, in those that kind of trinity of of team sports in the in the UK and England, that that's that's it's just a seminal moment in time, isn't it? And people will be looking back at it because of the of what a game it was and think possibly was the greatest game, which is what's called that. It's called called the greatest game. So hopefully, yeah, that will come out later this year. It's um, it's really oh, just bring it all back. Are they aware of the precariousness of it all? You know, of uh, that you could have easily been making a film about the New Zealand team if, uh, if the ball hadn't hit. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, does that come across? Yeah. You know, just the 
Well, I think we, we had to... Uh, the sporting life. Yeah, I think um, we did this with Pitch um, as well. And Pitch International represent um, New Zealand cricket quite a bit. Um, so they helped us get a couple of the New Zealanders when they were across for the Test Match Series last year um, into a position where we could interview them. So Kane Williamson and Jimmy Neesham kindly came and 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 talked about it. And it was very painful. That's very kind of them. No, it was kind of them. And I, I think... You know, in trying to sell this film, I'm not sure there's much of a market for it in New Zealand, but it's, uh, you know, it's one of those, it's just a really, it was good of them to do. I think that it still rankles with them and it's still painful for them. And then it kind of happened again, didn't it, in the T20? But, it, it, they, you know, they're, uh, they're a great bunch. And I think what they did with their team and what Brendan McCullum kind of started has, has continued with New Zealand cricket hasn't it? And, and as a result of that, um, they just have got, I don't know, they, they've got their system right. And I think they're going to put themselves in many more opportunities to come because they've, they've, they've got the system correct over there. Yeah. And when can we see it? Um, we don't know yet. So uh, we're, we're in the position by, I think, it, hopefully the end of this year, but um, I, don't want to, I don't want to say as yet because it's still not uh, confirmed. You've denied the VPAR podcast a scoop, but I have uh, denied the I'll, exclusive I'll, I'll just I'll forgive, simply I'll because I don't want to uh, don't want to jeopardise <laughs> anything. So yeah, so we don't know yet, but um, once it's once it's sold, hopefully we'll be uh, we'll be ready to go and uh, we'll be in a good position to do so. I've, I've taken up your time. Just final question. We'll go back to golf. Um, your, fa- yeah. your favorite course? You mentioned some, but your your your, your favorite course, preferably without snakes. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, having played it, uh, you know, the, those sandbelt courses. Uh, Kingston Heath is great. I cannot, I cannot play the new at Sunningdale. It's it's too long for you know mid-range handicappers, I'm, and it's uh, I can't play the new. I can't usually play the old, but I I do love the old. I think uh, Sunningdale is uh, is one of my favourites in the UK, and of course Royal Wimbledon. Brilliant. Nudge nudge wink wink. Yeah, Simon, that's been brilliant. Thanks so much for talking to the VPAR podcast. Top man. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate it. That's all from us. You can find more episodes on our podcast feed. But for now, thanks for listening to the VPAR podcast, brought to you by the slickest golf app in the game.